Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Climate Voices podcast, a platform that shares and takes you to the front lines of the global fight against the climate crisis. I'm your host, Omesa Mukaya, bringing you to the deep dives into the greatest challenges posed by climate change, the most innovative solutions and the unsung heroes and champions shaping world's future through sharing their positive stories. Today, we are indeed honored to have a truly special guest joining us from the heart of Africa and boasting what I consider a great and impressive career in environmental policy and has had a finger on the pulse of the intersection between environmental conservation, climate change, and Africa's development. Our guest today is the United Nations Environment Program, UNEP's um, Climate Change Coordinator for Africa, Dr. Richard Nang. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh for having me. It's a great pleasure joining yeah. your amazing podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great honor to host you. So, Dr. Mnang, I know you've had, um, you've been at the forefront, you know, policymaking and navigating uh, the intricacies of climate adaptation, mitigation, and the all-important sustainable development for one of the most diverse, vibrant, and yet vulnerable continents of our planet, my motherland, Africa. So, could you briefly introduce yourself and take us through your journey um, into where you are? Yeah, thanks again. Actually, this discussion is actually very timely because we're in 2023 and the past few months and even days have seen the continent not only suffering from the shock and impacts of climate change, but with people losing their lives from Cyclone Freddy in Malawi, Mozambique, Madagascar that caused loss of lives and destruction of property to the droughts in the Horn of Africa. Uh, where over 20 million people have been affected, and to the floods in Rwanda and DRC that have costed the lives of 400 people plus millions that have been displaced, shows that we are living with these apocalyptic effects of climate change and something needs to be done. My names are Richard Munang, and I'm the UNEP Regional Climate Change Coordinator. And I've been in this space for 14 years today, and starting this career and embarking on climate change since 2009 have actually made me to understand firsthand as I engage with countries at policy level and even at a ground level, engaging the informal sector and young people to see firsthand what they go through and also what they can offer. And therefore, with what I've seen from a policy perspective to implementation and to what informal sector our mothers our brothers and sisters are doing at a community level, one can confidently say that Africa is a vulnerable continent. And one of the key issues that Africa faces today is that the vulnerability of Africa, with Africa contributing just 3 to 4% of emission, but being the most vulnerable continent, is as a result of one word, socioeconomics. The vulnerability with socioeconomics comes from the perspective that the low level of socioeconomics makes the continent not able to recover when a disaster strikes as a result of climate change. When there is a flood, a mother cannot be able to move to another town because he or she cannot be able to afford money. When there is a drought, a mother cannot be able to afford food because she doesn't have alternatives. And therefore, diversification of opportunities to empower people to be able to cope and become resilient is actually one of the lacking issues. And when it comes to the policy perspective, Africa is excellent, and we need to give credit where it is due. It is the only continent in the world that have ratified 98% of NDC, which are nationally determined contributions, climate action plans that, as a result of the Paris Agreement, 
in December 2015, countries were mandated to submit, ratify that Paris Agreement and develop this climate action plan. But now, as we're talking, 80% of African countries have revised this climate action plan, increased the ambition more than even developing countries, even developed countries. And that is opportunity that the continent can move in a low emission development pathway, but it also showcases that the continent of Africa and African countries and leaders do understand the inherent opportunities that climate action brings. But the mismatch is that those excellent policies do not match with the same weight and effort when it comes to implementation. And so the glaring gap becomes wider. And so what is needed now is actually how do we mobilize and galvanize the continent's strength, which is high yield. And that's why during these 14 years, what I've argued and what I have shown and I will continue to do is that you can only agree from a position of strength and Africa's strength is high youth. They're energetic, they're passionate, they're entrepreneurial and the changing climate, despite the fact that it's a challenge, also presents an opportunity and it's an opportunity for jobs. It's an opportunity for innovation and those who innovate and can be able to drive that transformational progress are the young people. So engaging them as an asset, not from a position of weakness, but from a position of gear strength to devise solutions and innovations and actually see Africa turning this challenge of climate impacts to climate opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a very in-depth, you know, review of what you've been doing and what Africa can do. And I know Africa is a very diverse continent, first of all, to start from there in terms of its peoples and in terms of its ecosystems. And, and even from how uh, governance structures are set for different countries, we find uh, different policies in terms of addressing the climate change are very uh, unique. Uh, you have mentioned uh, the nationally determined contributions. I know different countries have their own NDCs. Kenya, for example, had uh, its revised NDCs from 30 to 32 percent. But, uh, you know, your work ranges from uh, not just in one region in Africa, one country in Africa, but the, the entire region. So for over the 14 years that you've been working what are some of the, you know, opportunities you're seeing? Uh, you know, challenges again, first of all, you start with the challenges given the diversity of Africa and, and the different set of, you know, governance structures for different countries uh, that we can galvanize as Africa to make sure that we move forward in terms of catching up with the rest of the world, uh, you know, in, in terms of addressing uh, the climate crisis. Yeah, very important question. Um, the continent of Africa, of course, is diverse. Yes, of course, it has different climatic and agroecological zones. But there is one commonality, which is its vulnerability to the changing climate only differ in magnitudes. No country is immune in the continent. And because of that, what I have also learned over time is that Africa's challenges also have common solutions. That a drought in Togo or in Burkina Faso with the application of a solution like Zai, which is an indigenous knowledge, can be applied into Ghana in Kenya. And that a solution in Kenya can actually, like conservation agriculture in Makweni, can be applied in Yaoundé, in Gandhari, in Cameroon. And so common problems, common solutions. And I think this is a starting point. The next aspect is that when you look across the entire African continent, it's a youthful continent, whether it is not South Central, eastern part of the continent. It's a youthful continent. And that commonality means that despite the fact that there are different governance structures and different architectures of leadership, the commonalities to me are an advantage because even if you look at the continent, 
the foundational premise of how Africa has been governed for till today is that those traditional structures still do exist. If you take, for example, governance structures, there are still kingdoms across Africa. In Buganda, we have the Buganda Kingdom in Uganda. In other places, we have kingdoms that still have those structures that can be leveraged to be able to reach the population and masses across different uh, regions in the country and even the continent. Why I'm bringing this up front is to present an opportunity that is not tapped. Before I come to discuss the challenges, because under the changing climate, we must always see challenges as disguised opportunities. But the fact that there are opportunities in disguise that are not being tapped, every challenge then needs to be matched with that opportunity. And let me start with the challenge of governance. Governance, climate governance in the continent today have a challenge of implementation. When you look at the 2016 Climate Act of Kenya, actually the Mozambicious Act, where the head of state actually shares it, meaning that they have the national emblem and the national leadership. It's progress. When you look at the national action plan, national adaptation plans and climate action, national uh, adaptation plans that over 21 African countries have put in place. When you look at the ratification of the Paris Agreement and also the revision of the Paris Agreement, it tells you that climate governance in the continent is solid, but the challenge is implementation. And so the argument should be, with all these laws in place, with acts and uh, climate revisions and updated NDCs, brilliant. Now the discussion now needs to be, how do we operationalize this? And I think there are two aspects that need to be part of the mainstream. If you get into the market or to a shop to buy something, the first thing will be, regardless of where you are, is this does this thing have value for money? Is there value for money? If I was to buy this for $5, is it worth it? And that means that where you put your money, as they say where I come from in Cameroon, you put your money where your mouth will thank you. It therefore means that investors investing in implementing climate action, especially the indices, will and must have to see returns on investment. But Africa is lacking behind. And that's why Africa needs to drive NDC investment plans. In a continent today, over 72% of all the NDCs in all the countries, 72% of Africa NDCs do not have investment plans. That is a big challenge. Even the 28 that claim to have investment plans are not investment plans, they're just costed. But to implement food security, to implement climate, smart agriculture, this is the amount that Africa needs. It's not an investment plan. An investment plan is if you were to drive solar power irrigation and drive uptake of solar dryers and drive uptake of agroforestry and drive uptake of e-mobility, what will be the enabling environment that is needed for these? What will be the opportunities that private sector can tap into and what will be the returns on investment? That will have to be documented using critical empirical evidence and at the same time, that's one dimension. The other dimension is what I call regulatory and policy reform. If it is, for example, solar power irrigation, can countries be able to waive taxes on importation of the parts that assemble solar power irrigation? That's a physical incentive. Can we be able to ensure that at least, if it is land tenure, there are regulatory reforms that ensure that accessibility to land, especially for our mothers to be able to own land and invest in it, knowing that they own it, can then be able to happen so that land titles can easily be given. These are realistic, practical elements of developing an NDC investment plan. The second aspect is finance. When I was speaking today, 
return is over 1.6 trillion US dollars between now and 2030 to implement their indices to drive resilience of the continent. But unfortunately, between 2016 and 2021, the amount of money that has come to the continent is merely just about 5.5%, whereas the continent needs over 126 billion annually between now and 2030. The paradoxical part is that as the resources, the meager resources that have come to the continent, only about 80 billion between 2016 and 2021, 80% of those resources are coming from international public sources and only 14% from the private sector. That means we cannot depend only on public sources to be able to drive transformational climate action. We must incentivize climate change, private sector to be part and parcel of this. How do you do that? Enabling environment, NDC's investment plans, and at the same time developing what I call innovative blended finance tools because we need sources of finance, not only from government, but from the private sector. But the last aspect that I really want to portray is, is one in which I'll keep coming back to it again, is that no matter the amount of money that comes to the continent, it is people that drive transformational solutions. Unless the young people, who are not just the architect of driving solutions in the continent, but who are the asset, and who are also the implementers that need to be tapped into, unless they're de risk. You might not be able to move on. What does this de-risking entail? It's about training and capacitating them. It's about retooling their skills. It's about giving them the right tools. Also, not only from the perspective of what they need to do, but also changing the attitude to start seeing challenges as disguised opportunities. And that needs training, that needs awareness, needs giving them the right education that focuses in teaching them how to turn climate challenge into climate opportunity where enterprises are. Turning waste, simple waste, agricultural waste, household waste into burgers. You tap into not just a billion plus industry in the continent. Turning waste to fuel briquettes. You tap into over 20 billion US dollar market in the continent replacing charcoal. I think until this becomes the mainstream, it will continue to be a big challenge. You, you've mentioned a lot of things there. I've picked up things from policy, from finance, from local uh, solutions to climate uh, challenges in Africa. You know, uh, referring back to what you said about how the governance structure is set in Kenya through the Climate Change Act of 2016, uh, we know that implementation, you said implementation is a big challenge, especially in, uh, in Kenya or in any other country in Africa. But how the structure is set is that uh, you know, climate change, for instance, is a devolved uh, function of the national government, meaning implementation is done down at the county levels. So do you see, for example, you know, different countries coming, uh, you know, downscaling that uh, into the smaller units of implementation at the county levels, presenting a, a, an opportunity uh, for implementation again? Uh, and, and, and when you talk about the aspect of finance, uh, you see, you say much of the financing that is uh, given to addressing climate vulnerability in Africa comes from outside of Africa. So where are these opportunities? Because if we are talking about, you know, African solutions for African problems, where are these funding opportunities, for example, in Africa that we can tap into, you know, to address the climate uh, crisis locally, um, for example, in Kenya, in Cameroon or in Nigeria, in any other country? Yeah, very important point. And I think that I will start to answer that from three perspectives. So the first is, there's no absence of solutions and sources of finance that can be looked internally. 
but we need to be cognizant of the fact that the amount of money in terms of cash is about 1.6 trillion US dollars that Africa needs. That's one. Two is that we are focused more resources to drive transformational climate action on cash alone. People have not been put at the center, especially the young people who can be able to be the engineers and drivers of solutions. And I think this podcast is an important opportunity to make the case that yes, we need resources, but where are the people? Are we capacitating and retooling the skills of the very people who are supposed to leverage the resources that are raised to then make impact? And I think once that starts to get and sink, we will have more resources because even the little that could be raised, we will start to see transformational shifts. If you throw money on people who do not have the know-how, there is no magic on earth that is going to address the problem that any country or any community faces. The other aspect that you mentioned, I think is very important. The devolution system of Kenya and other African countries like Nigeria, which is a federated state, is a federated nation, do have counties and in Nigeria, there are states and other countries where there is the devolving of power for environmental and climate action to happen at the county level. Excellent. If you take Kenya, Kenya is actually a leader. Many counties in Kenya have actually not only passed climate change laws within their county assembly, they've even gone ahead to create climate change fund. And that is an opportunity to then be able at county level to raise funds both internally and also externally within the country and externally internationally. That is excellent. And my argument is a step in the right direction. But what about also ensuring that initiatives to retool youth skills through primary school, high school, and even universities, and uh, TVETs or vocational and technical education in the technique. How about also focusing on that to start making sure that investment into those institutions that can then be able to help retool young people's skills, to then be able to understand what they can do and drive entrepreneurship as a compulsory subject for every young person in the country. So that when they're getting out of school there, they start to create businesses. When the little money that is leveraged, either from international financing or from local coffers, can then be used to support these young people to kickstart their enterprises or support those who have started the enterprises. The third aspect on this element is about raising funds internally, which I think is really something that I've been pushing very strongly. It doesn't gain a lot of attention like external finance, which is okay and understood and is appreciated, is that Africa will never have enough funds to drive transformational climate action. In 2009 in Copenhagen, the 100 billion US dollars that was promised till today is still a discussion. Only 80 billion has been raised. And how much has come to the continent? About 20 billion which is just about 5.5% of the needs of the continent yearly. But if you take 2009 to 2023, you are talking over a decade plus, but the continent have only received 20 billion, 54 countries. And the unfortunate thing is that even this 20 billion has only gone to about 10 countries in the continent. From the statistics that we have, it behooves us to say, until Africa start looking internally. And I want to make this clear that Africa looking internally doesn't mean that international obligations should not be honored. 
But if your house is on fire, you will not wait for neighbors to come and put out the fire. You will start to play your part to put out that fire before neighbors come and support you. Does it mean that Africa should continue burning as international finance delay? Absolutely not. The citizens of the continent need a decent life. They need to be protected. They need to be bail resilient. And therefore, African countries and governments must now start innovating to devise means in which they can use the little they have. Because the good news is that every year, Africa, African countries spend $3 billion US dollar, which is 20% on adaptation, 20% of the adaptation needs yearly. If they can spend that, it means that they're doing something. But the question is, can they start to use that 3 billion US dollars? Devise resharing facility, which is very simple. Develop instruments with central banks that can incentivize, actually, um, uh, uh, that can incentivize commercial banks and cooperatives and chamas and circles to lend to those who are doing work in the climate space, low interest rate, and government can add more physical policy incentives like waiving taxes on those who are developing and fabricating solar dryers, on those who are turning waste to baggers, on those who are building in the climate space so that at least they can become implementers. This is the kind of new thinking that is needed. But back to your question on county levels, I actually believe that counties have done very well in Kenya, yeah. And I believe I'm seeing in other countries, Nigeria, they're passing climate laws. But what I think needs to be done in addition to that excellent progress is now making climate change and climate action part of national development and county development by integrating this within the educational curriculum and making this part and parcel of budget making, which is what we push as the UN Environment Programme called sustainable budgeting. What sustainable budgeting simply means is food prices are up today. We have energy crisis. What can be done is that any budget must be able to be climate proof. If it is agriculture, is it climate smart agriculture that will deliver it? And then a budget for agriculture must be able to be located to ensure that every aspect of nature-based solutions, climate smart agriculture approaches are the ones that will drive it. If it is on energy, which Kenya is a leader on energy with over 89% of its energy coming from clean sources, that then means that energy budget will then definitely have to focus more on clean solutions. And the same for infrastructure. Is it resilient? So sustainable budgeting is leveraging climate and environmental solutions to help drive socioeconomic opportunities. And doing that, we'll see countries implement their indices. We'll see countries address the sustainable development goal as well as their visions, and in the case of Kenya, Vision 2030. I want to try to differentiate between mitigation and adaptation because for a long time, we've seen a lot of efforts focused on mitigation because uh, if we're talking about Africa, much of what we need is actually adaptation because Africa is a negligible emitter of the greenhouse gas emissions. So, and, and there's some, it's a term I learned from you, mitigation powering adaptation. So how do we ensure that uh, there are these efforts, you know, um, implementing mitigation as a complement to uh, supporting adaptation because we might actually focus, put, put more focus on adaptation again and forget mitigation, which has been the major focus, you know, in the rest of the world. That is a very important point. And, and this brings me to this aspect of narrative. Uh, the narrative of climate change in the African continent has not actually helped the continent. And I say this 
with a heavy heart from the perspective that the continent of Africa is vulnerable. Fact, their emission is only 3 to 4%. And the vulnerability is as a result of low levels of socioeconomic. And therefore, because of low level of socioeconomic aspects, the continent needs to put money, people need to put money in their pockets and food on the table. And if you take the continent today, over 65% of the continent workforce is in the agricultural sector. At the same time, in the continent, over 620 million Africans are energy impoverished. But when you put everything together, you will notice that it is not possible to build resilience and ensure that mothers can put more money in more pockets when you lock them down only at production level. And when you don't add value to what you produce, that's where Africa has been behind. And Africa has been losing as a result of service losses over 48 billion US dollars. It therefore means we must be able to look at how we can leverage opportunity in the climate action space, regardless of whether Africa needs adaptation or not. And what we have done is that a mother produces using agroforestry, which is a nature-based solution, an ecosystem-based adaptation approach. And she produces her tomatoes or her vegetables, as kumawiki, and it gets spoiled. It is just as good as her having produced anything. But when a simple mitigation technique like a solar dryer, which has proven to not only increase effectiveness over 30 times as compared to open sun drying, one mother can then be able to store that vegetable for over six months and can also within that time fetch a market. It avoids spoilage. It also avoids contamination, which is a health aspect. And the longevity of that also ensures that you can be able to sell and put more money in more pockets. And also preservation like solar power fridges, to be able to store fish and also store vegetables. These are mitigation action, but they are being used to ensure and power adaptation solution. If that mother uses solar power irrigation to irrigate a farm in Tukana because of lack of rains and lack of water, she is irrigating the farm so that you can have produce and be able to feed the family. That solar power irrigation is a mitigation action, but she's not using it because she wants to lower emissions, but because she wants to build resilience. And that resilience is to ensure that you have food to be able to feed a family and even sell some. And so the narrative of climate change in Africa needs to be seen through the lens of socioeconomic empowerment, because the biggest empowerment is socioeconomic. When someone cannot put food on the table and more money, more pocket, person is more vulnerable. And therefore, why I coined this mitigation powering adaptation should be the entry point for Africa is not that Africa is actually gearing towards reducing emissions because they have negligible emissions, but utilizing mitigation solutions to further drive its resilience and improve its socioeconomic status. That way, they will be more adaptable to the changing climate because their resilience will be strengthened. And more importantly, they will be in a very strong position to be able to drive transformational development. So when you yeah. talk about um, some of these locally-led initiatives, like you made reference to the Zaipi technology, which I think was developed somewhere in West Africa. Yes, it's in Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso, yeah. Um, yeah, it's actually in the Sahel. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've, I've seen it, um, you know, being applied in Kenya. But again, it brings me back to the point that you are saying, whose knowledge counts? These are some of the techniques that we haven't seen being adopted widely because this knowledge hasn't been shared. I only saw about um, the application in Kenya because 
I mean, some someone came from outside and did some bit of research about it and shared, wrote an article about it and, uh, you know, everyone, you know, try to consider it now something that they can apply. But this is something that people have been doing over a long period of time. And there are other things that people have been doing. You talk about, I know something uh, that you're good at, like you've been talking about since I knew you in 2015, ecosystem-based adaptation, uh, you know, for food security in Africa. That's the first conference actually where I met you at the UN in Nairobi. Right. Yeah. So there are some of the locally led initiatives, for example, using other, you know, tree shrubs, which are really locally available like Tithonia diversifolia and all that that have you know the, the capacity or the potential to address the challenges that we're facing but we see huge multinational corporations for instance uh you know moving into the you know food systems we talk about corporations like Monsanto which are kind of now dominating the food uh, food systems uh, value chain and some somehow the efforts to switch to industrial farming have undermined, uh, you know, ecological farming or ecosystem-based adaptation or nature-based solutions, as you might like to call them. So how do we, you know, grapple between, because again, Africa is made of a great number of people, about 60, over 60% small-scale farmers, but now with the huge multinational corporations pushing them out of the you know, agriculture value chain, working through public-private partnerships with governments and passing policies or laws that favor them. So how, again, are we talking about addressing these challenges locally if the multinational corporations are working in cahoots with the government in undermining the efforts of over 65 you know, percent of African populace. So as someone who's worked across, you know, implementing policy from the UN level and all other, you know, uh, sectors and and also working in cooperation with um, other locally led initiatives, how, how, how are you supposed to go about this? Yeah, very important point. And I think that firstly, this knowledge that you're sharing out here and bringing people to discuss it is already part of awareness because people need to know what they're up against. And I think in the African continent, that has not been articulated very clearly. And so this podcast, pretty much that you are leading, is of the solution. And don't want to estimate it. Because knowledge is power. The second aspect is that nobody gives anybody anything. You seize it. Let me repeat that. Nobody gives anybody anything. You seize it. And in this space, which is very, very competitive, where Africa, as I started off by saying, is a vulnerable continent where it presents more opportunities than any part of the world. If Africans don't see it, especially the youth to seize it, others will seize it and occupy it for them. And therefore, what needs to be done is for the youth to understand that you cannot be able to grow and develop without actually having challenges to solve. Every developed nation in the world rebuilt, especially if you take America, they rebuilt after the Second World War. They rebuild, Europe rebuilt after the Second World War. And rebuilding is never a bad thing because then you do it differently. I've argued that the vulnerability of the African continent is actually a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for young people to know that they have to seize the space and occupy it. And seizing the space is not through complaining, but starting to do what is relevant to the people. The other point that I think is so important, Africa is an informal continent. Africa, over 80% of the entire African continent population is informal. 
our mamambogas, our mothers and brothers are in communities, in villages. And that then means that solutions that are viable and accessible to them are not complicated solutions. They are solutions like Zai that we mentioned that people in the Sahel used because it doesn't rain there, digging small holes and interspersing them with organic matter when it rains has actually proven that when it captures rain, they can be able to produce yields over 500% as compared to other places. Why is that technology not used? Because Africans have not championed it. And I'll go back to what I said. Yeah. Only you can be able to tell your story. And when you don't champion your story and defend and own it, then you like like you likely lose it, and then you have to embrace what is not yours. Why I'm saying this is that there's nothing wrong with solutions anywhere in the world that can be embraced if they're fit for purpose. But the argument should be: Do Africa lack solutions, and have Africans championed what they have, and it's not working? The answer is no. Africans are not championing that with the same energy that they would discuss about lack of finance, which is a legitimate discussion and request but the issue is why can we not leverage what works the other aspect that i think and i read on the young people is to start leveraging these solutions and making a case around it to be funded and to be propelled and pushed forward the other aspect that i mentioned which is africa being an informal continent means that even if you were to bring all the technologies in the world they're not going to fit into my mother's farm in a small village of jinkwin because first of all she will not be able to operate the machine but she, do, she does use green solutions and nature-based solutions of organic manure droppings from chicken and pear, and she gets bumper harvest. But her issue is not about production anymore. It's about value addition, which then means, how do we start to engage and facilitate decentralization of simple solar dryers to communities, decentralize solar fridges to communities, which is where investments in value addition and expanding the value chain will create jobs for the young people, empower our mothers in communities, put more money in more pockets. Unless this is done, then we are into trouble. And the other aspect is about the health aspect. We're talking about one health now, there is the emergence of what is called the antimicrobial resistance. The heavy application of fertilizers leaching into rivers is not only causing trouble from the perspective that people are getting sick. The heavy metals from wastewater that is used for cultivation in cities is causing illness, causing people to be able to depend on antibiotics. And because they take it so much, they become resistant to the very antibiotics, making illnesses that cause them not to disappear easily. And this is killing and is projected to be the worst killer in the next 30 years in the African continent. What does that tell us? Climate solutions are health solutions. Organic fertilizer, a market worth billions. And it's actually growing at 5.9% rate. But how many African countries are investing organic fertilizer where jobs can be created for the youth as environment is not only protected, but climate resilience development is built. The other aspect is bargas. And I've argued is when the just transition debate came up, the continent started talking about we need to explore and extract our gas. Fine and good. The question is, how many mothers in rural Kenya and rural Cameroon and rural Nigeria can be able to afford a cooking gas stove? But they have been using charcoal to displace them from charcoal. You need to bring an alternative that can still serve that purpose. And that's where buckets come in. So why don't we start with what can be easily accessible as we then bring the other aspect that can build on top? 
It's about electricity, Ms. Colton. Whereas we need to decentralize electricity to every village. Excellent, that must happen. But the question is, how will that mother be able to buy a light bulb if she cannot put food on the table and money in the pocket? Therefore means electricity and energy cannot just be about providing electricity. It needs to be what I call competitive energy, where it is about to add value to power agro-industrialization in communities, helping mothers to be able to dry their vegetables, dry their tomatoes, powering solar fridges, powering solar systems to make sure that people can then be able to power cottage industries at that lower level and drive agro-industrialization. This needs a policy dimension, and this also needs a citizenry dimension to embrace these solutions and champion them. And so to your question, of external infiltration of the continent with solutions that are not fit for purpose. The counter to that question is the continent actually looking at what they have and presenting it not just to the world, but to themselves that this is what we need and finding ways to expand that. That is how you occupy your space. If you don't occupy your space, it will be occupied for you by anyone. Talking of just energy transition, you made reference to Kenya, of course, uptake of renewable energy is like a very great percentage, about 89% renewable energy. Right. And, you know, coming from that point, you might want to say just, just energy transition, uh, what it means for Africa and what it means for the rest of the world is a different thing. Because, for example, if we're talking about Kenya, it's already you know, almost fully transitioning. And we see all these opportunities for, you know, transitioning to clean energy across the planet. But Africa, as you know, over 600 million people are locked in energy poverty. And these people need access to clean energy for cooking, for heating, for cooling. And countries like Tanzania, for example, have huge, uh, you know, deposits of natural gas. Kenya has huge deposits, about, I think, 400 million tons of, uh, you know, uh, coal, I mean, coal deposits in the eastern parts of Kenya. And when they're, they're talking about, you know, um, powering the continent and making sure these people are pulling themselves out of uh, energy poverty, the first thing that comes into mind is looking at the you know locally available resources and what we have in the deposits is then the fossil fuels the technologies that we're trying to move away from so if we are talking about just energy transition across the planet which uh, might actually have a different uh, impact in in the for example in the global north compared to africa so how does africa pull itself out of poverty if it's not going to exploit these resources because the rest of the world has, again, the arguments have been over time is that they used this development pathway to attain the development that they are posting of at the moment. But Africa hasn't had the opportunity uh, to use that, but we need to, you know, make sure people have energy. You've talked about, you know, uh, down at the community level, I think it, there's a name for that. It's like uh, micro, micro grid, like off-grid technology. Yeah, mini grid. And, and, and nanogrid technologies making sure that people produce energy at the household uh, level for for example and if this they have surplus they can supply for example to their neighbors off the grid so how is that possible for africa so what what opportunities are presented in that for africa and what does just energy transition mean uh, for africa as compared to the rest of the world excellent let me start from the perspective that you've ended what just transition actually means Actually, it means one thing, justice. And what is justice in this case? It's about equity, equitable opportunities and access to what is needed at the same time, 
building socioeconomic resilience. It's about justice, it's about equity, and it's about socioeconomics. So three aspects within the context of Africa. That's the meaning. It therefore means a mother who is in a village in Ghana and haven't had food to eat because of a drought and doesn't have money in his or her pocket or food on the table cannot be discussing just energy transition when she's hungry. He said, if you tell a hungry child that you gave him or her food yesterday, that means nothing to that child. She's hungry. He needs food. He is hungry. He needs food. What does this mean? It means the socioeconomic empowerment of Africa is number one, but it must be number one from the perspective of how we leverage climate action to drive that socioeconomic without adding to emissions. That is the starting point. And that goes to the other aspect of countries wanting to explore their gas. And my argument on this is this. I think we're going too fast, even for the right reasons, and forgetting the issues that Africa faces. Number one, Africa is not facing an issue of emissions. Africa is facing an issue of vulnerability. Yes. Number two is that the vulnerability is higher in those who are socioeconomically disabled because they lack alternatives. It then means unless you focus on addressing the socioeconomic low base issue, you cannot be able to lift them from the bottom of the pyramid and out of poverty. And when they're impoverished, they're more vulnerable and susceptible to the climate uh, impacts. The third, why I'm bringing this dimension is for our viewers, I mean listeners, to, to, to understand this debate. The third aspect is, if Africa is an informal continent, over 80% of the population is in the informal sector, what is the best approach to empower them to have access to clean cooking? Because 920 million Africans are energy poor. The energy impoverished, they use on clean cooking, they depend on charcoal and firewood. And this is not only lowering their socioeconomic status, but it's also lowering their health status. Over 700,000 Africans die every year because of indoor pollution. Why? Because yes. they depend on charcoal. They've committed no crime. It's because they lack alternatives. If this is the case, which alternative do you provide to prevent loss of lives? 700,000 Africans, these are not just a statistic, these are lives that have been lost, and at the same time, empower them to lift themselves out of poverty. You must look at what I call accessible solutions. And these accessible solutions, like I said before, if a mother cannot be able to afford a meal, where will she get money to buy a gas stove? even if you provide her with gas at zero VAT. You need to have money to buy. That then means we must look at ways in which we can empower communities to drive enterprises, to put money in their pocket, to be able to afford what they can afford. And to start off with that, there needs to be leveraging what they are already doing, making accessibility to financing using chamas and circles and cooperatives that are accessible to these people so they can be able to afford the resources they have to create their businesses 
using what they already have, and as they get empowered, we can then into the other aspect. And the question will be, does it mean Africa should not explore their gas? The question is not about Africa exploring gas or not. The question is, what is the best easy approach to lift people from the bottom of the pyramid while at the same time building climate resilience and ensuring that Africa is not polluting its environment? And the, and the answer is, Africa should leverage what is accessible and immediate. It paves its way towards looking at what is the best means to move forward. Let me just say this for the record. Building one liquid petroleum gas of 25 billion US dollars. And liquid petroleum plant, building one liquid petroleum plant costs 25 billion US dollars. That's just what build and that liquid petroleum gas plant not the finished product. There you now need to build another plant now to refine it. You're talking about billions. That is the very amount of money that Africa needs to invest to make sure that the energy impoverished people can be lifted out of poverty. Does it make sense to use that money and incentivize enterprise opportunities for young people and the informal sector so that we leave them up and as they start to grow and pay taxes, the government coffers can get more money and then invest in such to be able to extract gas whereby the people that they want to address now have little money in their pockets to buy. That makes economic sense. So the debate that I think Africa is jumping to on just energy transition misses equity and socioeconomics. Yes, focuses on justice that they have not contributed to the problem, which is valid, but misses the starting point and who this should serve. And when the argument is not made in this simplistic way, we miss the logic and we miss the nitty-gritty, and then emotions come in. That are still legitimate, but then we lose the big picture and then get embroiled in this back-and-forth debate of should we leave our gas on the ground or should we explore? The question is, where will you take the money to build the gas plant? It will be loans. Who will pay the loans? The citizens. Will the job come from for the citizens to be able to be doing what they need to do to pay taxes? The jury is out. Yeah, thank you so much for expanding on that. The reason why I ask that is because um, in the name of, you know, trying to solve this energy crisis that we have in Kenya, the energy poverty, we have seen a lot of, uh, and the crisis happening in, you know, Russia and Ukraine, we have seen a lot of, you know, countries in the global north rushing to Africa and trying to have, you know, agreements in exploiting the natural resources that we have, the fossil fuels deposits that we have not for the purposes of solving the energy poverty in Africa, but to export the energy back to their countries, which are solely uh, you know, dependent on that because this, again, a crisis that has been cut off from Russia. Uh, you know, again, talking of justice, you mentioned a critical point about uh, in, uh, justice and equity. So I like to uh, you know, ask from your personal work or experience in Africa, how the, the concept of climate justice applies uh, in your work in Africa, uh, especially in terms of, you know, looking at the nations that um, have done the least, uh, but are at the moment impacted the most by the impacts of climate change. Yes, I think the issue of climate justice is uh, that of those who have contributed to the problem to be able to support the countries that have contributed least. And I think the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities is enshrined in the uh, rule book. Uh, the Paris rule book, and of course, the principles of the convention, the UNFCCC. 
the point that I made earlier, which is that climate change is a moving target. As the discussions are going on, people are dying. So, so it's not like it's waiting that when we agree that Kanist will be supported tomorrow, then everything will stop. As the debate is going on, there are cyclones, there are floods, there are droughts, lives are lost. And as I always say, if you carry your own water, you will know what every drop means. When you lose a drop, only you will feel the pain because you know how hard it was to carry that water and what every drop means to you. Those who are feeling the pinch of these are not actually part of this debate. Yes. Our mothers in communities, they know really nothing about this and they don't care to know because it's about livelihood and survival. What I think needs to be done is to apply justice from the perspective of engaging those communities and providing them with the little that is available. Engaging those communities and building on the knowledge that they have used to survive even without support. Because I can tell you that sometimes the noise of our shadow, the progress that is made even in communities where there is no support. In my country, Cameroon, where I come from, in my village, where I grew up in the northwestern part of Cameroon, I saw it firsthand, crop failure in my mother's farm, and I've documented this in my book. But the point is, there were coping mechanisms in which you used to survive. Yes, the corn maize will fail, but there are also techniques you use to bury yams underneath the earth for almost six months as you go dock them and come and feed us. Are we trying to understand how she did it? Also build on that so that at least her knowledge can add to the debate? Seems not really an urgency at the moment, which means that those that are more vulnerable also have solutions seem to be abandoned in this debate. I believe the real justice will also be to understand their gaps, to fill those gaps, because to them it's about livelihood, survival, and at the same time they need food on the table and more money. So the justice perspective from a global as aspect is Africa needs support. It is unequivocal and that should happen. But when it comes down to the country and the continent, the vulnerable, informal sector, our young people need support from the continent because without having them as the climate army, Africa will not be able to fight climate change from an enterprise and opportunity perspective. Yeah. And that's the real justice is, are we empowering the, when the youth not in power? We are losing an asset and that is an injustice. When our mothers in communities are not given accessible opportunities to be able to assess clean cook stoves, to be able to assess clean well briquettes, to be able to assess baggers, that is an injustice because then, as every day passes, they are losing hope. And the only antidote to despair is action. And that action is what can be able to quench the injustice and narrow the injustice gap that we see across the continent. Yeah, you've talked about whose knowledge counts and you've said uh, Africa needs support in terms of addressing the climate challenges. And that brings me to a concept that I've, I always refer to co-production co of knowledge and co-creation of solutions because we can't mm -hmm. do it on our own. No one can do it on their own. You know, apparently everyone needs, uh, you know, some support from somewhere, uh, for instance, to address the impacts that we're facing. We talk about Global South, we talk about, for example, the small highland developing nations, 
Uh, we talk about communities that are affected by, for example, the hurricanes that you mentioned in the Southern African parts, because their resilience again is is uh, you know is impacted because we don't have the resources or the capacity uh, to enhance their resilience. And you mentioned about the socioeconomic. So I I wanna ask if there is a way the UN is partnering with communities or, or working with communities, for instance, in co-creating uh, some of the solutions that you've been mentioning or co-producing the knowledge you mentioned sometimes back. The reason why this knowledge is not spread wide is because it depends on who produces that knowledge. So how is the UN, for example, in, uh, in Africa through your work, uh, working with uh, governments in Africa or communities in Africa to ensure that this knowledge of the best practices that we're talking about are scaled up in other parts that haven't uh, gotten an opportunity to uh, to adopt some of the ones that you've mentioned. For example, the Zaytis yeah, technology. Yeah, very important uh, question, uh, Omesa, and thank you for that. The point is that the UN is a stakeholder and an actor in a space that needs everyone on board. We need a yes. whole of society yeah. approach, young people, governments, NGOs, civil society, international organizations, including the UN, and even individual citizens in the space of climate change to be able to make a difference. But when it comes to the UN, especially the UN Environment Program, the role of the UN Environment Program is, first of all, to convene. Second, is to create the knowledge and the science that can then be able to inform policy. And third, is to inspire action. And when you start with the one of convening, the UN has brought the entire world in collaboration with the World Meteorological Organization, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was created. And these have been providing some science. Every assessment has shown the urgency that needs to be taken to actually put in place not only actions, but mobilize the resources that are needed to slow the fast pace at which we are moving towards 1.5 degree. But yes. the UN environment, have championed science through the production of the emissions gap report that shows the state of emissions in the world and what countries are doing and what we need to do to be able to limit dangerous climate change. And these for over 10 years have been not just the antenna that alerts the world of where we are and what we need to do, but have influenced negotiations that have seen progress in these negotiations culminating in different agreements from the Paris Agreement to the outcomes that we're seeing now on loss and damage. And more importantly, on top of the emissions gap report, there is the adaptation gap report that actually the one of 2022 showed very clearly that developing countries need five to six times funding that can be able to build their resilience. And most of these developing countries are in the African continent. But more importantly, that the gap between finance and action is widening. And whereas the implementation of policies and the, the national adaptation plans. Most countries are having policies, they're putting this, but the implementation is where there is a mismatch. And recently, two days ago, the United Nations Environment Program produced a report called Turning of the Tap, which is about plastics. And it's showing that between now and 2040, if actions were to be taken both by government and non-state actors, 80% of plastic could be taken out of the environment. And that will take re reducing the uses of plastic that can be able to save 
actually recycling that can save 20% and also diversifying and reorienting. And this will then be able to create one, over 1.2 trillion US dollars, save 1.2 trillion US dollars and save over 700,000 dollars. What am I talking about plastic here? The production of plastic results into emissions. And globally, plastic production results in emissions between 3 to 4%. That is exactly the amount of emissions that Africa emits. Africa, so yeah. if plastic were a country, were a continent, it would be equivalent to the emissions of Africa. Africa. And more importantly, in addition to the fact that plastics are littered into the environment and they clog up drainage systems, and with the changing climate resulting in provincial rainfalls and resulting to flooding that are not only plunging people into suffering and submerging their farms and homes, it means that when we reduce plastic in the environment, we are also creating an opportunity to ensure that at least the flooding is reduced. And the last aspect is that when people get sick as a result of flooding, either it is sickness coming as a result of uh, diseases that come because of water standing somewhere, mosquitoes getting into it, or cholera that they drink the water because it gets into the streams in which they drink, that order impoverishes them, lowering their socioeconomic ability to be able to build resilience. So the linkage between pollution, plastics, and climate, why I'm bringing this up is to show at the knowledge front and science, UNEP has championed this. And currently, as we speak, during the United Nations Environment Assembly called UNEP 5.2, last year there was the adoption of a resolution to create a legally binding yeah. agreement on plastic. And that will actually come into force in 2024. So the convening space of bringing member states to make decisions and drive legally binding systems, UNEP does that. Now let's come now to how does it inspire action? With all the science, what UNEP have been doing in helping member states is actually to inspire action. And inspiring action, firstly, helping countries to turn their nationally determined contribution, their climate action plan into investment plans. Last week, we were in Uganda working with the government to put in place a national adaptation, national determined contribution investment plan, and also how to develop an NDC investment plan with a blended finance facility. These examples of bringing knowledge and expertise and working with government and non-state actors, producing tools will then be shared across the continent, leveraging on the networks that UNEF have built and also leveraging the African Ministerial Conference on the Environment, which UNEF is secretariat. But more importantly, the showcase of action. UNEP have actually been leveraging the space to convene young people. And what we have done more effectively is getting to the informal sector and inspiring youth and driving a tool called innovative volunteerism, which is very simple. Yeah. How do you inspire young people to see themselves as solution providers and at the same time become inspired in the environmental climate solutions and start to learn new skills as we provide technical backstopping. And that I've seen not only youth venturing into turning agricultural waste into fuel briquettes, we've seen youth being guided to develop fabricate solar dryers that communities today are using. The data coming out of that, what we are doing is we're leveraging this data and informing governments to put in place enabling policies like tax breaks, enabling policies like physical incentives to reduce taxes and give lower interest rates so that youth can be able to assess opportunities. And the last part, is how to integrate these 
opportunities into school curriculum. We're working with the Nasarawa State University, where the first ever climate action entrepreneurship curriculum has been created in the world is Nasarawa State University and Bayesago University in Botswana. UNEP has driven this, working with state and non-state actors, bringing a new thinking, showcasing solutions that are relatable to the common Wananchi and the informal sector and youth. And that data will continuously be used to champion and integrate into different UN portfolios through the United Nations country teams and leveraging and providing data to fit and new state actors so that at least they can see practically that climate opportunity is seized from climate challenges. I was actually going to ask if you have something to say to the youth, but you already started mentioning it. It's like you went ahead of my thoughts. Uh, you mentioned something about uh, innovative volunteerism. Again, this is something that I've been following up on uh, what you're doing on social media. And actually through what you are doing, you are you know, sharing through your platforms. It's something that the youth needs. Again, if you're talking about you know disseminating the knowledge, and part of what I'm doing with the podcast is actually trying to break down the complicated jargon so that right. you know, we have everyone understanding, uh, especially the people at the grassroots uh, who don't understand the complicated climate science that we talk at the you know scientific level. Yeah, so thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. So um, are there some other, I mean, we have mentioned that partly, but are there some other ways as we come to the end of this? I, I mean... Uh, we could stay here and have the conversation for as long as we could. Right, but, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so in the interest of time, are there other, you know, um, ways that you see, you mentioned in the beginning that Africa is a youthful population over, I, I, think, I think over 65 or 70% youth. So are there opportunities because they're the ones actually going to be living longer to see the impact. So are there other ways that you see young people uh, being involved in this space? Absolutely. Uh, the law of Africa's transformation in movements, whether economic, social, environmental, and take the center stage in not only climate opportunity, but in an authority in solutions to the world, will meet young people. I started off by saying that they are the most passionate, the most energetic the most entrepreneurial youth that I've ever seen in the world. And one of the things that I would like to say is that when you don't face a challenge, there's no urgency for a solution. Yeah. yeah. And when there's no urgency for a solution, you become complacent and you get forgotten. Those who make a difference are those who are confronted with adversity. And it's true for personal life, it's true for regions, it's true for countries. The most resilient people in the world are those who have gone through adversity. They face adversity. And why I'm bringing this message is to the young people that Africa's adversity is an opportunity for Africans and especially the young people to build resilience. Africa's adversity should not make us to fend. It should actually awaken us to work harder to find alternative solutions because Africa's solutions are global solutions. Yes. Unless we accept and understand that this is how things have always happened in the world, then we fail. But why I'm bringing up this point is that social media, policies and surveys have shown that Africa, especially the youth, are the ones who spend more time 
on social media almost four hours at minimum a day for those who have access to it. What do they do? That four hours spending is not necessarily learning anything new. Yeah. It's about conversations and abuses and churning, churning out and sharing information that it's not helpful in the solution space, but that's very little value. It's about rule models that are by the rule model, but there is really nothing a rule model about that. In that we are supposed to use these spaces to share solutions. Because if there is social media today, it means that a youth in Togo who is yearning for solutions can be able to engage with a youth in Kenya, not necessarily having to fly to, to Kenya. And that space should be used to foster collaboration, to foster partnerships, to share knowledge, to bring new knowledge. And that way, Africa will transform through youth initiatives, not necessarily through any other. Government role is not to implement. It is good enabling environment but government follow mostly what has worked when you showcase what you've done with force governments and the youth today because they are the biggest population in the continent also have a powerful tool which is electing leaders and let's not get to the politics of whether abcd no they can be able to decide a future africa wants and africa needs by playing their role in solutions and at the same time, also correcting the governance systems in the continent. Therefore, saying this to say that it all, it, it, it stands and breaks in the hands of the youth. Therefore, for them to wait that things will be given to them, they will not. And what I'm talking here is not about using uh, any orthodoxy means. I'm talking about solutions. Solutions are what change the world. Let them do what they can do, present the gaps, and force governments to close it with incentives. And if they don't use it, let them use the ballot box to kick them out. It therefore means if anybody asks me, governments are not doing enough, what can you say? I will say, no, the youth are not doing enough. Yeah. And when you tell me that, no, the youth are disenfranchised and they're, they're, they're angry against the government, but I said that they're giving those governments the opportunity because they're supposed to be showcasing the solutions in which they have undertaken or they are to undertake and force government to close the gaps through incentives, through enabling policies, through reduction in taking away value-added taxes and fight to get that. Because as I started by saying, nobody gives anybody anything. Yeah, you, you have to it. seize it. And the youth of Africa should seize this climate opportunity because it will not be given to them. That's powerful. So I, I see opportunities, a lot of opportunities for young people who are listening to this. Seize the space. Nobody's going to give it to you on a silver platter. You have to Absolutely. seize it. You have to seize your space. You have to find your space. You have to demand for your space to be on the table. Otherwise, the future is going to be doomed for us. And uh, we don't want to spread that you know, message of doom. We are the young generations and we are the future of Africa. We have to keep doing it. Yeah, so coming to the end of this, any last, you know, parting shot for any listeners, whether young, old, or, uh, you know, any person who might who might be listening to this. I, I mean, you have a, a large audience across, across the planet. <laughs> and uh, so there are a lot of people who have been listening to this and will be listening to this. So what's the uh, last message that we want to uh, give them as we come to the end of this? Thanks again. Thanks again, uh, Omesa. Uh, I think the point that I've made is if anyone is living now, he or she is the most privileged to have ever existed. The opportunities are enormous. 
so are also challenges in those opportunities. But if we focus on the 0.1%, we will lose at the 99.99%. And that seems to be what is happening. We must then be able to reorient our minds and shift our mindset to seeing the 99% and tapping it more forcefully to displace the 0.1%. Why do I say so? The complaining and bashing of what is not working in Africa and projecting it on mainstream media is hiding opportunities for young people and others are seizing those opportunities and occupying space that in five years' time they will never have that space even though they are African citizens. That's one. The second aspect is that your biggest ability is your availability. Your biggest ability is your availability. Avail yourself and learn. Listen to podcasts like this. Read, understand. Do not just swallow information. You yes. need to be able to look at what is right and what is not right and distinguish it. When you consume everything, you will be liable to use wrong information that will not be able to help you see opportunities. Avail yourself to learn. Read. The third aspect is that your biggest premium on this earth is not the house you live. It's not your father's car. It's not the degrees you have. It's your skill. Your skill is your biggest premium because with the skill, you have value and you can exchange value for money. With that, retooling your skill and climate change space present a lot of opportunities and those opportunities can only be tapped when you have retooled your skill. Learn. It's not about what you study. Develop interest in the climate space and pick something, whether it is in fabricating solar dryer, whether it is in understanding the critical aspect that Africa is discussing today, and I'm not seeing the youth in that space, which is dangerous. The Russian-Ukraine crisis caused inflationary major pressures in countries. Hunger prices, flour, wheat prices increased. I have not seen single discussion from youth around how Africa can overcome this by using its Africa's goal, which is cassava. Cassava is an indigenous crop. It can grow during dry season and rainy season. And there is a research that shows that with a changing climate, the reduction in staples, cassava will be the least at 8%. Ripple is at almost 45% and maize. With leveraging these indigenous crops and making them the norm and not the exception, we will still continue to externalize solutions and even externalizing our plates, our stomachs. That then means that we are just going to be living at the mercy of others, especially when climate change is showing that our stables are going to fail. And therefore, we must prioritize cassava, which is an indigenous climate resilient crop. The last aspect that I think is very important, I'd like to touch on this. Failure is not a crime. When you try and fail, fail forward and learn. Because if you don't fail, if you don't try, you will not fail. If you don't fail, you cannot learn. And if you cannot learn, you cannot change. And if you cannot change, you cannot be useful. So everybody who is where he is today was not born to be speaking about climate change like I'm doing. It's through learning. It's through making mistakes. It's through trying to find out what is the alternative. And as a result of that, you will build value and authenticity. Know that you have to fail. But as you fail, have faith that at least tomorrow can be better. But tomorrow can only be better as a result of what you do today. So when we talk and postpone tomorrow to tomorrow, tomorrow never comes. But when we act today, tomorrow we'll see what we did today and we can build on that to 
a transformational change. That's how we can hope. Because I hear people talking about hope. You can hope when you are inactive. But when you are active, you can have faith that what you are doing can work. And with faith, you can hope that tomorrow can be better. So with that action that inspires and drives what we can be able to do with a faith and strong belief, tomorrow will come when we have solutions in place, there can be no way to hope. Like I said, the only antidote to complaining, despair, and blame game is action. But action comes with pain. Action comes with pain. And if we are not ready to endure that short-term pain, we can never have long-term gain. And I urge our young people to know that with that short-term pain, there can be no long-term gain. And climate action needs us to endure that short-term pain so that we can enjoy long-term pain in the coming days and years. Thank you so much. That's a very powerful closing. And uh, we, I, I, I thank you so much and uh, for your insights. I mean, it's been a very insightful conversation and getting to learn from what you've been uh, doing over the years. You mentioned you've been in this space for 14 years and still going. Some of us are looking up to what you've been doing. I mean, since thank I knew you in 2015. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we like to close it up there. Until next time, this is the Climate Voices podcast. And I like to close with powerful words. I, I think it's from Barack Obama, if I'm not wrong. We are the first generation to actually experience the real impacts of climate change. And we are apparently the last that can act to end the impacts. So everyone, this is our space. Let's do it. Thank you so much. This is the Climate Voices podcast. And I'm your host, Omesa Mokaya. Thank you. Thank you very much.